You know, some Sundays I just get up here and already my heart feels so full just from the time of being able to sing uh, in the worship and praise of our God together with you. It truly is a fellowship of grace, and we just want to give God all the honor and all the praise for the body of Christ and how when we meet together, He strengthens us and encourages us and stirs us up in our love and our devotion to Him. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 2 this morning as we finish the introduction that we began last week for a new study that we're diving into as a church titled Christianity 101, Living as Elect Exiles. This is a letter, 1 Peter, that will teach us the foundations of essential Christianity, of how to live in this world for the glory of God. And Peter does not mess around. He starts teaching us how to do so in the first two verses by reminding us most essentially of who we are in Christ Jesus. Who we are. That is the key. The only way that you and I will ever be able to live in this world for the glory of God is if we remember who we are. If we remember our God-given identity. And one of the things you'll see in the book of 1 Peter is how often Peter comes back to reminding us as believers of who we are so then we can then live in light of that for the glory of God. We need to remember our God-given identity. And what we are reminded of in the first two verses of this book is that we are elect exiles. We are elect exiles. Now if I were to ask you how many of you this morning are landowners this morning, I expect a good many of you would probably say that you are. Many of you would be able to drive me over to a specific parcel of land this afternoon and be able to point to it and say, you see that right there? That is mine. I own that. And because of that claim, you've probably done some things with that piece of property. You may have built a house on it, or cleared a path, or at the very least, put up a do not trespass sign. And beyond that, you you would probably be able to show me a slip of paper where a significant authority, such as a bank, or a lawyer, or a previous owner, confirms your claim to that land, saying this property does in fact belong to you, you own it, it's yours. It is things like these that make the land ours. Can you imagine, though, if on top of that you had God directly tell you, this piece of property is yours. From this location to that location, all of it belongs to you. That would really make that piece of property yours, wouldn't it? I mean, you can't own anything more than when the sovereign owner of all heaven and earth personally tells you that it's yours. That is the ultimate claim to ownership. I'm guessing God's never told you that about your own piece of property, though, (laughs) or anything else that you currently possess, has he? But you know what? There was one time when God stepped down into history and said, this is yours, you own it. And that was with a man named Abraham. If you remember in Genesis 13, after Lot, his nephew, had separated from him, God came to Abram and said, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And God said again in Genesis 17, verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your surgeonings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. 
and I will be their God. If ever a man ever owned anything on earth, it was Abraham. By the decree of God himself, that land was his. And yet what's interesting is that when you read the Old Testament accounts, Abraham never built a house on the promised land. Even though he Even though he owned that piece of land more than anyone has ever owned anything, Abraham never settled down on it. As Hebrews 11 verse 9 says, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents. Even though Abraham owned the land, he stayed in tents the whole time. And not only that, when Abraham came to the end of his life and he had to bury his wife Sarah among the Hittites, he said this. He didn't say to them, hey, this land is mine. It belongs to me. Get out so I can bury my wife. No, Abraham tells the Hittites in Genesis 23 verse 4, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So do you see the point? Even though God said that that land was Abraham's land, even though by all rights it belonged to him, and even though Abraham was tied to this earth more closely and more rightly than any of us will ever possibly be, by divine decree, Abraham still says, I don't belong here. None of this is mine. This isn't my home. I'm just a surgeoner. I'm a pilgrim, I'm a stranger in exile, just passing through. That's how Abraham looked at himself, and Abraham wasn't alone in this perspective. We see this picked up later by his grandson Jacob in Genesis 47. As Jacob nears the end of his life, his son Joseph brings him before Pharaoh, the ruler of the Egyptian empire at that time. And Pharaoh asked Jacob in Genesis 47 verse 8, How many are the days of the years of your life? In other words, how old are you? Now, Jacob could have simply said, well, I'm so many years old. But listen to what he says and testifies of in Genesis 47, verse 9. Jacob says something very deliberate. Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of my sojourning are 130 years. There it is again. I'm just a sojourner. I don't belong here. I'm just a pilgrim, a stranger in exile, passing through. Isn't that interesting? And what you start seeing is that this perspective of being a stranger in exile is picked up by the people of God as an identity throughout the entire Old Testament. There are many examples I could give. Here's just one more for you. David. Think about that. He was a king. David was a king dwelling in palaces anchored in marble, raised up by cedar and covered with gold. I mean, David was a king, a king firmly established upon an eternal throne of an an entire nation that God promised would never pass away. And yet David says twice in Psalms 119, I am a sojourner on this earth, and this palace is nothing more than the house of my sojourning. And that's why he prayed at the coronation of the temple's offering in 1 Chronicles 29-15 before all the people of Israel. We, he says to the people of God, we are strangers and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are a shadow and there is no abiding. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the people of God consistently testified as Hebrews 11 verse 13 says that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. I'm a sojourner. I don't belong here. I'm just a pilgrim, a stranger in exile. Just passing through. 
That is the truth that Peter wanted to remind his audience of right off the bat in the introduction of this letter. In light of all the trials and all the suffering and all the rejection that they as followers of Christ were starting to face in the world, Peter wanted those believers to remember that they were elect exiles. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. Now we looked at the first half of that truth last week that we as believers, that we as believers in Jesus Christ are elect. That is to say God has sovereignly chosen us of His own will by His own grace to be recipients of His own salvation. That is a choice that lay entirely on Him in eternity past and it was a decision that He made of His own purpose and grace so that no one may boast in the presence of the Lord. They can only boast in the Lord. And Peter wants his suffering audience to remember who they are. God has chosen you. God has chosen you. You are elect. Well, the second truth that Peter wants his audience to remember so that they can live in this world for the glory of God is that we as believers in Jesus Christ are not only elect, but we're also exiles. And we, as, we are exiles according to the same sovereign plan of God that elected us to salvation. That is a very important point for us to remember as Christians in this world. And that's what Peter's going to show us this morning. We as believers are elect not only in terms of our salvation, but also in terms of our exile. The same God who is sovereign over our salvation is also sovereign over our suffering. And therefore we can rejoice not only in our election, but we can also rejoice in our exile. We're going to see that this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-2. through 2. So let's read that passage again to be prepared for what the Holy Spirit has for us today. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1 on into verse 2. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us today. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the Word of God who can keep our steps steady according to His promises and lets no iniquity get dominion over us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. And Father, we thank You that Your Word reveals to us those major answers to those major questions. Who are You? And then, who am I? Father, I thank you that there is an answer given to us in Christ Jesus by which we can filter all of life's experiences through. I thank you for this book. I thank you that your spirit moved upon the Apostle Peter to write down these words after he walked through all these trials and all these hardships, as he was brought down to weakness, he was restored so that he might be able to strengthen us today as we consider your word. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you would accompany the 
the teaching of Your Word with power by Your Spirit. Help us to understand the things contained herein so that we can live as we ought to live in this world for Your honor and glory. Remind us of who we are today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after Peter reminds his audience that they are elect by God's sovereign plan, he then reminds them that they are exiles by God's sovereign plan. They are exiles. They are exiles. That is foreigners, strangers, pilgrims, those who are far from home. That is us as believers in Jesus Christ. Though we are living in this world, Peter wants to remind his suffering audience and us that we are not part of this world. We are exiles, and actually feeling at home here is a great, great spiritual danger. Because this world is not your home. We belong to another. Peter shows us in this letter that we as believers are exiles in three major ways, and they are the exact same ways that we are elect in salvation. Peter is going to show us that we are exiles in identity, we are exiles in increasing actuality, and we are exiles in accordance to God's will. So first, I want you to see here in this passage that we are exiles in identity. That is what Peter directly says. He says, to those who are elect, what? Exiles. That's what he calls us. All of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation are exiles. That is, we are strangers living in a foreign land. We are pilgrims that are yet far from home. It didn't always used to be this way, by the way. Before we trusted in Jesus Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were at home in this world's system following the course of this world, following after the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians 2, 2 says. Yes, in fact, 1 John 5, 19 says that we were lying in the lap of the evil one. That was our home. In the lap and power of Satan. We belong to him. We belong to his wicked kingdom of rebellion against God. But the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ, our residency changed. As Paul said in Colossians 1, 13-14, which we studied, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have found redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We have a new kingdom as believers, a new homeland. Our citizenship is in heaven, as Philippians 3.20 states, from whom we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This world is no longer our home. We now desire, as Hebrews 11, verse 16 says, a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Just like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and all the saints of God that have gone before us, we now find ourselves as believers in this day, displaced in this world, strangers and exiles in a foreign land. And Peter's going to remind us of this important truth throughout this letter such as in verse 17 of this same chapter, as well as verse 11 of the next, where he reminds us that we as believers are sojourners and we are exiles undergoing a time of exile. And we must learn to live like it. Which brings us to the second way that we as followers of Christ are exiles. We're not only exiles in identity, but we are also exiles in increasing actuality. Peter tells us here at the end of verse 1 that these believers that he was writing to were not only exiles in a spiritual sense, right? They were exiles actually physically, in actuality. He says that they were elect exiles of the dispersion 
in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All those regions are basically what we would call now today modern-day Turkey. And they were, what's interesting, they were, that those regions were where the gospel first went forth. Those regions were where the first missionaries traveled. Those regions were where the very first churches outside Jerusalem were planted. If Jerusalem is considered the place where Christianity was born, the regions that Peter mentions here is where Christianity took its first steps and was first embraced. And yet that initial reception was short-lived. Here it was, just 30 or so years later, and they as Christians were now losing their jobs, they were being driven out of their homes, and they would soon be fleeing for their own lives in the midst of persecution. And yet that initial, that initial reception, it was short-lived because of what Nero had done. In a few short years, they would enter the most severe form of persecution under Nero. See, in 64 AD, Nero decided he wanted to rebuild the city of Rome. So you know what he did? As a madman, he decided to set fire to the areas that he considered slums. Unfortunately, the fires spread out of control and three-fourths of the entire city burned to the ground. The people got very angry, understandably, and rebelled in anger. And so Nero, in a desire to keep his head upon his shoulders, needed to find a scapegoat to to blame. He looked around and he chose the Christians because, as he put it, they were generally hated for their quote, strangeness, unquote. And so he unleashed the public hatred upon them. The Christians were driven from their homes, they were forced into hiding, and they became homeless and moneyless among a world that was pitiless. The Roman historian Tacticus in Fengs records that when they were caught, the Christians were persecuted in horrific ways, like being covered with the hides of wild beasts, and then attacked to death by ravenous wolves, or nailed to crosses and set on fire to serve for evening lights. Christians were persecuted in horrific ways. Why? Because as Nero put it, they're strange. See, the world hates Christians. Not because we are exiles and strangers merely in identity, but primarily because... We as Christians are strangers in increasing actuality. See, when compared to the carnal lifestyles of the unredeemed, we as Christians act strange, right? We have a totally different moral compass. That is why the world hates us. As Peter will say later in chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, he says, live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And he names it. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatries. And then he says this in verse 4. With respect to this they, that is the unsaved, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. That is, they think it's strange that you don't participate in the same things they do. And so they malign you is what Peter says. See, Peter is warning us as believers that the world will exile us because we're different, because we're strange, right? In other words, we don't celebrate the same things that they celebrate, and they don't celebrate the same things we celebrate. We have a totally different priority set, a totally different moral compass, a totally different authority structure, and a totally different fear and allegiance. 
And whereas we in Christ have been given the capacity to love them in spite of differences, they who are outside of Christ do not have that capacity to love those who are different from them. Therefore, they will hate us. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As Charles Spurgeon once said, If you have room for Christ, then remember from this day forth the world has no room for you. Because we are exiles in identity, Peter warns us that we will increasingly experience exiles in exile in actuality. This is exactly, by the way, what our Lord warned us of. We shouldn't be surprised at this. John 15, 19, Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as their own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Right? It's because we are elect that we are therefore exiles. And again, in chapter 17, verse 14 of John, Jesus prays to the Father and He says, I have given them Your Word and the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Right? Our citizenship has changed. We are exiles in identity. We are exiles in increasing actuality. And finally, we are exiles in accordance to God's plan. This is what Peter says. This is the core of his sentence. If you haven't picked it up yet, he says this, to those who are elect exiles, how? Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Do you see what Peter's saying there? He's teaching the wonderful truth that God is sovereign not only over our salvation, but also over our sufferings and hardships. All of it, our election and our exile, our entire identity as Christians is all in accordance with God's plan. So let's consider this briefly. Peter says first that we are exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now remember that word foreknowledge doesn't mean foresight. It's not that God saw from eternity past, oh man, Zach's going to go through a hard day. No, God planned for me to go through that day. He wrote out every day that I would ever live before I even lived one of them. That's what Scripture talks about. God not only anticipates everything that we face in this life, He allows for everything that we face in this life. Every difficult we face and every hardship we endure occurs according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing we experience occurs outside of God's sovereign plan and oversight. As the psalmist broadly confessed in Psalms 139, verse 16, Every one of my days which you formed for me were written in your book before I even lived one of them. Every event, every moment of our life is carefully supervised and foreordained according to the will of God. My times are in your hands, as the psalmist says again in Psalms 31, verse 15. God anticipates and He allows everything in our lives, the good and the bad. As He Himself said in Isaiah 45, verse 7, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. It's just like we often sing, though we often don't think about the words we're singing. Every joy or trial falleth from above. Traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. So first basic point. God is God. 
He is God in the good times. He is God in the bad. He is sovereign over all events. Not only our salvation, but also our suffering. God not only anticipates everything that we might face in this life, He allows for everything that we face in this life. Now that immediately raises the question then, why? I mean, I'm not saying this as a theologian. Can I just remind you of that? I've buried a daughter. Why? These are questions you ask. Why is God allowing this in my life as a believer? If I really am God's child, and He really is my Father, then why is He allowing this suffering in my life? Why the pain? Why the heartache? And that brings us to the next few phrases where Peter tells us next, we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What? In the sanctification of the Spirit. So why does God allow trials to come into the lives of His children? Short answer, for our sanctification. It's one of the answers. For our sanctification. That is, to translate that word, to make us more holy. To make us more like Jesus. As 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. I mean, that's what God's always driving for in your life. Why is this happening? You can always say, it's for my sanctification. It's always an answer. Right? This is the reason, this is the will, this is the purpose of God behind every circumstance in your life. Your sanctification, we see this most famously in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29, where we read there, and we know that all things, not are good, but all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now that's wonderful. But you need to ask yourself the question, what is that ultimate good? What is that ultimate purpose that all things are slowly and sovereignly working towards, together towards. Verse 29 says this, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to what purpose? To be conformed into the image of His Son, in order that He, that is Christ, might be the firstborn, that He might be above all among many brothers. See, that's the, that's the ultimate goal. That is the ultimate purpose that all things are working together towards. It is to conform us as God's children into the image of God's Son so that He might be better glorified by our lives. That's why every circumstance comes into our life. In other words, God allows us as His children to enter into times of suffering because by His almighty grace and His sovereign supervision, that suffering will make us more like Jesus and that's what Peter's going to teach later on in this letter when he says in chapter 2, verse 20, what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Answer, none. It's of no benefit. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, God's grace is at work in that moment, even when you're suffering for doing what is good. Namely, as Peter will say later in 1 Peter 1, verse 7, it is through these trials as exiles on earth that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, Peter says in chapter 3, verse 14, you will be blessed. Namely, we'll become more like Jesus, which is why we're here as Christians. 
Now, there are other reasons why trials and hardships come into our lives as believers that could be listed at this point. But chief among them, God allows them for our sanctification to carve away our rough points, to carve away our idolatry, to carve away our love for other things, and to shape us more into the image of Jesus Christ above all. So we as believers are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, third, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Notice, even our sanctification in trials isn't for our benefit alone, is it? It's for obedience to Jesus Christ. We are set apart by God the Father to be sanctified by God the Spirit so that we might be able to better obey God the Son. It's all for His glory. It's all for God's glory. This is the purpose of our trials, to make us more obedient to Jesus Christ our Lord. Trials make us more obedient. Psalms 119, 67-71 and 71 state this, It is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. Before I was afflicted, I often went astray. But now I keep to your word. God sends us through trials to purge us from our sinful habits, to wake us up in our walk with Him, and to return us to right paths for His name's sake. It's all for His glory. It's for obedience to Jesus Christ. And notice Peter also slips in that phrase that we are exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now in the Old Testament, the blood of the covenant was sprinkled upon those who entered into it. So to be sprinkled with Christ's blood means it's a shorthand to be saved, right? To be forgiven of your sins and to enter into a new and saving relationship with God through faith in Christ Jesus. And Peter's telling these suffering believers, don't forget, God is using these hardships in your life to bring about the spread of the gospel and the salvation of the lost. It is for sprinkling with His blood. You have been made exiles in this dispersion. You have been made to suffer. Your homes have been taken away from you. Your jobs have been taken away from you. And you are now on the road to a town you've never been to before because you are there to share the gospel. It's for sprinkling with His blood. And I wish I had time to show you this more, but that truth is exactly what we see play out in the book of Acts from cover to cover. Even though Jesus had told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation for the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, the church didn't budge an inch outside of Jerusalem's own walls. And so in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, God causes a great persecution to rise up against the church in Jerusalem so that the believers were, quote, all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then verse 4 tells us, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And many people were saved. It was all for sprinkling with His blood. So here's the simple point that I want you to think about as believers here this morning. Have you ever considered the fact, believer, that your trial... Your hardship, your suffering is actually opening up for you a great door of ministry through which you can share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and the comfort that only God can give to those who might not ever listen. That's what Peter's saying here. He says, in cha- he says that in chapter 2, verse 12, that our conduct as exiles will bring about the glory of God on the day of visitation. And he says it again in chapter 3, verse 1, how wives, by their good conduct, 
to an unbelieving spouse may even win their husbands to Christ without saying a word. Keep that in mind the next time you're going through a trial. This is giving me an opportunity in some way to share the gospel and the glory of Christ to someone who had never listened otherwise. And I had to be looking for that ministry door. We as believers are elect exiles so that we and others around us might be sprinkled with Christ's blood. So that as 2 Corinthians 4.15 says, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So do you see, as believers and as followers of Jesus Christ, we are exiles in this world, but we are exiles in this world according to the plan of God. It is for a purpose. It is for a purpose. It is for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. This really changes our perspective in life. In fact, I would encourage you to do this as an activity when you go home today. Especially if you are going through a hard time right now and your trials are numerous. Okay, I want you to go home and I want you to write down everything that you've been struggling with recently on a piece of paper. List it all out. Every hardship, every trial, every difficulty. I want you to write it all down. And then I want you to write underneath at the bottom of that piece of paper, underneath all of the things that you're struggling with, I want you to write down this phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. If you do that, you'll see that that last phrase you just wrote down flips everything on its head. Are you going through hard times? Are you struggling with difficult situations inside and out? Yes. But remember, believer, it's all according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. He is with you in that trial for His glory, your good, and the salvation of the lost. It's all for a reason. And that's what Peter wanted to remind his suffering audience of right off the bat. bat that they were elect and that they were exiles according to the will of God. God has chosen us to reflect His glory in the midst of suffering to a lost and dying world. We are elect exiles. God has chosen us to reflect His glory in the midst of suffering to a lost and dying world. We are elect exiles. It's in light of that truth that Peter finally gives the affectionate address the end of verse 2 where he says this. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's a prayer. That was more than just a common greeting. This is a prayer by Peter for his audience. Having reminded them, listen, you have been chosen by God to shine out the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. In the midst of suffering, Peter now acknowledges, listen, That is no easy task. Trials are hard. Therefore, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And Peter, their teacher, knew personally the need for grace and peace. Grace is God giving you in those moments what you don't deserve. And peace, that is a settled rightness in your heart towards God. And Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That was the burden of his heart as he thought about what they were going through as believers. 
since they were saved and they were in Christ, they already had grace and peace. But now since they were suffering and in hardship, they needed that grace and peace to be multiplied to them. They needed grace and peace in increasing amount to meet their increasing struggles. And only God could give it to them. Only God could give it to them. And so Peter prays for them that they might find in the presence of their God exceeding grace in the midst of trials and exceeding peace in the midst of turbulence. He knows what they need. Multiplied grace and peace. So what does he do? How do you obtain the grace and peace that you need from God? He prays. And then he communicates the truth of God to them for the rest of the letter. What do you need in the midst of your trial? How can you continue living for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of your hardships? It is to remain on your knees before the throne of God. And it is to remain in the truths of the gospel. That God is sovereign, not only over your election, but also over your exile. That's what we need as well. Just as Peter's audience was, we too as believers are in Jesus Christ are elect exiles. We are elect chosen by God to be recipients of His saving grace and His unmerited peace. But we are also exiles, strangers living in a foreign land, living for a foreign king. Christ above all, we're not meant to be comfortable here. We are to be living for another king. For that we will be hated just as all the people of God have been throughout all the ages. And for that, we will be exiled increasingly from relationships, careers, positions, and places. And for that, we need God's grace and we need God's peace to be multiplied to us, which we have because God has chosen us. Therefore, let us ask Him for it this coming week as a church, shall we? That we might live as who we are, elect exiles and sanctified strangers in this world for the glory of God and the salvation of the lost, that we might live out who we are, elect exiles. Peter will show us in detail, beginning next week, how exactly to do that throughout the rest of this letter. But for now, this is the word of God from 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until Christ returns. and takes us home. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You that it gives us that comfort and encouragement. Father, it gives us that comfort as we remember who we are in Christ, chosen by You to belong to Your family. What a blessed state we find ourselves in, Father. That every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ Jesus. We have been redeemed not with perishable things, but with imperishable things, with the pure and blameless blood of Jesus Christ. We are in such an exalted state in Jesus And we also find courage in Your Word that though we experience hostility and hardship, it is only the same path in which our Savior walked. 
That as the world hated Him, so they will hate us. We are exiles, but we are exiles for Your honor, for Your glory, and for our good. Help us, Father. Give us grace and peace this week to be able to look at our lives and our trials and our hardships through this filter of who we are in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us not to look at ourselves through the eyes of the world, as they look upon us, help us to look upon ourselves through the eyes of heaven as you look upon us. And in that strength, and in that encouragement, and in that joy, may we go forth traveling in this world for your glory and the salvation of the lost. Give us grace, Father. We praise. We begin this journey as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.